On the How To Be 60 podcast this week, Fame Academy's voice coach Carrie Grant is talking about her very modern family. And just a gentle warning, Carrie is very frank and we do have some discussions around suicide. She is also joyful, inspirational and truly an incredible woman. Three of them have got ADHD out of four and two at least are autistic. And so though that means that they are living with high, high levels of anxiety. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Yes. Right. Yeah. What's what's up with you? Right. Are you sorry. All the yeah, no, I'm so sorry. Oh my god. Shut up. This is not professional. I know. Well, it's 15 minutes early and I'm actually No, late you're, you're actually late. Yeah. Okay. Shall we start the podcast yeah. now? Yeah. Let's do that. How to be 60. How to be 60. Time for another episode of How to be 60 with me and Karen, Karen McKenzie, uh, with her pendulous breasts. Okay, you got last bit right. <laughs> What's that about? I do you think that was good? Well, where's that come from? <laughs> Apart from your gob. I, I just thought I would start with a song because we've got right. Carrie Grant as our guest. Oh, I see. See, everything is thought out with me. Everything, everything. That's every slightly worrying. Then, <laughs> if every detail is thought out. Very successful God. voice coach. And to be honest, I was kind of hoping that she might see something in me that's laying dormant. I was going to say it. That's kind of like what? Not so I was auditioning. Well, you're obviously quite confident about I'm, your own voice. I'm not. I've got well, a terrible voice. So, do you know you, what, Mrs. Corkhill? And I've never forgiven her for this. Yeah, primary mm-hmm. three. I was God. the only kid she would not let in the choir. She, no, seriously. Honestly, it, it's etched in my memory. She she had ginger curly hair and glasses. I can see her now. I can see her now. And we all had to. I don't know. I, I'm, I mean, I'm not that vindictive. I haven't been checking <laughs> to make sure she's gone or anything like that. Have <laughs> you gone? And I was the only one she wouldn't let in the car. That's horrible. Because she said I had a, a voice like a corn creak. I, I don't really know what a corn creak is. Can you sing? It sounds like a bird. I used to sing. I used to actually be in the uh, in the mods in the festivals, probably in the early part of my high school. The galaxy. The galaxy. Like I get a sheen eye. Come on. No, that's what well when I was a bit 11. Come on, a wee thing. No. Do you know I was got almost <laughs> on the edge of there and I thought, no. Why? Come on. <laughs> because you're not always going to get your own way. There we are. I've stuck my foot. That's oh. it. Well, yes. <laughs> right. Okay. So how's your breasts? Your oh, this how's my breath? <laughs> no, your, well, your breath. My breasts. Um, a bit shaky, actually. I was looking for a defibrillator. There's one down the road at the bowling club, actually. I always, when I you I had a Wetherill's original on my way over. What, are you speaking Gaelic again? No. <laughs> <laughs> is that where there was originally you call it? Yeah, I get them middle up with a fisherman's friend. Don't do that. What? You, because with your breath and getting older coming up that hill, it might go to the back oh, no, of your throat and choke. I drove. Oh, right. That's yeah, no, so no, I didn't. But it, right. it, it, sometimes it frightens me that when I suck in them, <gasps> what if it goes to the back of my throat? <laughs> that's an age thing as well. I think it's attention-seeking behaviour in your part. Oh, well, I'm driving that. Yes, because you want a big, hunky policeman to give you the Heimlich manoeuvre. That's what you want. And you're going to get that in Glasgow? Well, no, probably yeah. not. Probably not. Anyway, your breasts and your stoop. I gave you some advice last week to, to maybe spend a well, couple of hours in high heels. Okay, well, it didn't last a couple of hours. I did get into my high heels, but to be fair, I don't wear shoes inside the house, right? Right. 
and connect to the washing line with my high heels because I cut around <laughs> in shorts the whole time. And to go out to the washing line, shorts and high heels. Oh, well, that is really like I was just going out to work. <laughs> it just like what kind of work? Well, exactly. Well, it just didn't feel right. So I was thinking, God, I hope the neighbours aren't out. Trot, 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 because they do make a funny noise as well on my. But do you not feel that it brought your shoulders back? You couldn't walk with your hands, but well, maybe you did walk with your hands behind your back. It brought the breasts up a wee bit. No, it did none of that. Did not sort your stoop. <laughs> Just because I'm a 30E, oh, as opposed to your 30QD, <laughs> you're never going to let that one go, are you? No, the never. fact of the matter is, Kay, I've got a bigger chest than you. Oh, and God. And that's the way it's going to remain. Okay. Well, this is, um, I know this is a complete uh, dog leg, but my eldest is now 21. Oh, We've had a saw that. 21st birthday, 20 and... Thank you, Duolingo. She's had her first day at work. Oh, my God. How did that go? You know, it's funny. I was on tenterhooks until she called, and I didn't want to text her because you don't want to cause a fuss. And then the phone rang, and Ian was with me, so I put it on speakerphone, and we're both sitting there like this. You know, you're just sitting there like a pair of meerkats. What time was this at? About quarter past six. I was like, that's quite late. Oh, she's either in the toilets crying or she's out with friends. It's marvellous. Do you do this with your kids? I can tell not even – I don't even need the first word – I can tell by her breath. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Can you with do that? Alex with Alex, yes. It's funny, isn't it? Yes. And you think, Christ, which way is this going to go, actually? And you think, I do actually. There's always something to tell. What I can tell is, oh, my God, there's news here. What way uh-huh. is it going to go? So how did it go? What, the work? Yeah. Yes, no, no, it was good. I, I could tell it was a happy breath. Oh, It was a happy breath. Isn't that lovely? And, you know, it, it all spilled out and it all went well. I mean, you know, who knows what day two will be like. But it just always strikes me that you can tell without even a word, which I think, because, I mean, I've said before, she's the stress head. She's so different from Bonnie. You know, Charlie has a win at everything. Bonnie wants to win the things she cares about, doesn't give a fuck about the things that she doesn't care about, which is a fabulous attitude. And yes. I really yeah. wish I had it. Yes, it But, I. yeah, you don't. I, I thought you would be more like that, actually. What? Don't give a fuck? Uh, yeah, about things you don't care about. Uh, no, I am. I am. So I'm, I'm wishing that about you is what I meant. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, fair enough. I wish. <laughs> are you kids different from each other? Uh, they're very different from each other. I don't think either of them are competitive. Lisa's quietly confident. She just gets on with stuff. Alex is very different. Yeah, they're very different. Oh, do you know what? On family, I actually would have been on time, but I have just heard that I am a great aunt. Oh. oh my God, I've had two really special things happen this week. So today, my sister Ag, her oldest Rory and his partner Katie have just had Sylvie. Oh, just oh, about a couple of hours ago. So, um, oh my God, I was in tears in the van. So I would have been here on time, but I was out of tears in the van when your brothers are original. Oh, and Rory sent a picture of her and she's perfect. Oh, that is so that was a very special moment just, just now. And another special thing that happened this week was that Aidan, my nephew from New Zealand, uh, is over in the country for a couple of years and he came to visit me and we see he stayed overnight last Thursday and Aidan is my biological son if that makes sense I'm his biological mum so Christine and John had gone through different routes that's my sister in New Zealand couldn't have any children and uh, I donated an egg or several eggs went what? over to New Zealand yeah and Christine and John have a wee boy who's six foot four now I think and is the 
bit of me. Of you. He looks so like me. Wow. My girls are blonde and Aiden's dark. He's got the same gob. He's got the same mouth, mm-hmm. the same eyes. And as he was leaving on Friday, I kind of looked, I joked, I said, oh my God, you're getting, you're getting more and more like, and he said, oh, I have that picture um, of you when you were about 11. And I sent him the picture when he was about 11. We are the same. It's incredible. He is more like me than my own girls. It's weird. And how does that feel? It's lovely, actually. He's always known about it. It was weird when Christine phoned from New Zealand in the middle of the night to say she was pregnant. I was like, oh, that's great. And it was, it was really lovely. And I thought it's worked all the kind of like going back and forth to, you know, with the eggs and the, me going through IVF to kind of produce the eggs. And then she phoned again in the middle of the night to see she's had a wee boy. And I was like, oh my God, what do we do? Oh my God, right? Oh, and it was just bizarre. And I remember seeing Aiden for the first time and everyone's eyes were on me to see how I would be with this baby that was my biological boy but um no it's good and it's fine I mean he's he's special but he's no different and yeah I mean I, I hardly ever see him because he's in New Zealand but yeah it's a lovely lovely gift to be able to give so it's been a great thing within your family all round yeah no it's nice yeah wow and what do your girls think I don't know what they thought at the time actually and yeah I think they just accept it as a, it's not really sort of it's not not talked about but it's just Mm. They can see how alike we are with the mouth, the teeth, mm-hmm. the teeth key and the eyes. But um, you no. can get those done. <laughs> <laughs> Modern do- orthodontry now. It's fine. You'll be all right. They're Don't natural. worry, Aiden. <laughs> they're my own. Oh, we know they're natural. <laughs> we know they're natural. Oh, well, gosh. So, well, you've taken my breath away. It's been a week. Hasn't it? Yeah, it's Lovely. been a really nice week, actually. Well, it's we are going to be talking a lot about kids uh, with Carrie. Um, she and her husband David have written a book called A Very Modern Family, which is an account of their life with their four kids, um, Olive, Tylan, Arlo and Nathan, going from 28 at the top down to 13. All four are neurodivergent, uh, the three eldest children. I'm going to let Carrie tell all this, yeah. but, you know, uh, do, do not identify with their birth gender. And if I've got that terminology wrong, I apologise. I don't think I have. Um, so obviously they've had one hell of a ride, their family. And it's funny, you know, I met Carrie in 2009 in the most bizarre circumstances we both signed up to God knows why she did it. I'll can't wait for it to find to total wipeout. Do you remember total wipeout? No. She sounds hopeless. I never watched the telly. For Christ's sake, you've got no cultural references. Well, actually, total wipeout is not a cultural reference. <laughs> you, you get away with that. So like Love Island. No, what Mad, is it? extreme um physical assault. Course. You did that. I, well, no, I didn't. That was a problem. Mm. Uh, but I mean lunatic. They took us to Buenos Aires. Oh my God. Which was why I did it. I don't know why Carrie did it. I thought, I'm never going to get to Buenos Aires business class in my life. So I'm doing this. Have you never seen it that they have these giant red balls? Is it always at Buenos Aires? I think it's gone now. No, I think Health my sister did it. I think I did it. I think she did. Well, that she mentioned Buenos Aires. Became... No, no, no. This is donkey's years ago. No, it was donkey's years ago, 2009. Mm. And and it was just so, so extreme. It was the most oh, bizarre experience God. ever. Uh, now, I remember my Bonnie was two at the time. So I've actually been looking out. Uh, Olive must have been 14, Thailand 7, Arlo 3, oh round about that. And Carrie was just as if there was nothing going on in her life. I thought she was one of the most super cool, chilled, right on people I'd ever met. There was absolutely nothing to betray the fact wow. that, you know, I mean, apart from me, I was having 
three kids at I that know. time is, is a big I deal. So I'm, I am curious. So we're going to speak to her after the email of the week. Oh, yes. Let's hear the email of the week. I think we should actually rename this the I don't give a shit mail of the week, the I am 60 sod it <laughs> email of the week or the 60 and seditious email of the week. The 60 what? And seditious. All right, what's that mean? It means that you rail against convention and that oh, you're right. kind of anarchic and you want to break rules. Um, 60 right. and seditious. You quite like that quite word, like seditious. Because we're getting lots and lots of these emails and I'm absolutely loving them. This is from Lynn. Um, she says, uh, so she's enjoying the podcast. That's absolutely lovely. She said, I've been listening to it in the garden and I'm sure my neighbours are wondering what on earth I have been chuckling loudly to <laughs> recently, the dominatrix and vibrators. Well, there you go. <laughs> if they ask Lynn, just shout over the fence and tell them that. So she says, I was made redundant after 36 years in the civil service on my 59th birthday. That's nice. I know. My first thought was that I had to find another job. Oh. My confidence was shattered and my motivation low. Fortunately, I took a step back and I changed my complete outlook. I've taken up a casual contract with a local school invigilating exams. So I work when I want on my terms. I paid off debts. I have made investments with my compensation, left my pension to take when I'm 60. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go to the gym most days, which gives me a routine, sets me up for the day, uh, as well as seeing friends. I am loving having so much free time. I'm always busy. Husband has booked a trip to the Maldives for my 60th birthday. Why would I not look forward to that? She says, I'm viewing turning 60 as a new chapter in my life. This is what we want. Yes, this is no, what we absolutely. Want. And to be honest, it's far less daunting than when my life was determined by baby routines. I really relate to actually what Lynn's saying here. She says, I remember thinking then that my life would never be the same. I remember that feeling. Never be the same after you've had babies. And well, then I remember looking at that baby thinking, Christ, oh, Christ, no there's no going back. Yeah. But she says, no, it wasn't the same. It was actually far more enriched than I thought it could be. But I didn't know that at the time. So here's to being 60. And long may your podcast last. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you, Lynn. Isn't that lovely? there we go. Another I'm 60, I don't give a shit email. That's great. We'll speak to Carrie after this. She's not old enough, right enough. I think she's only 57, but never mind. We're being generous. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are great. I liked your rendition of how to be 60, how to be 60. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but listen to that lovely voice singing it. It's a little bit different, isn't it? Let's hear it again. Come on, Carrie. How to be 60, how to be 60. You'll never reach that key. No, no, no. How much is it going to cost to get you to record a new theme tune for us? Too too much. (laughs) Too much. We can't afford you. Oh, no. Oh, no. Going back to 2009, total wipeout that Karen's never, she's never seen anything. Oh, Karen, honestly, I don't know. Well, we know why we went there exactly because uh, of exactly what Kay said. We went there because we thought this is a free trip, first class travel. This is going to be a re- amazing. But what we didn't realise is that half of us would be hospitalised. Oh, my so, God. Yeah. Do you remember that, actually, when we got back to Heathrow? I think yes. Cleo, Cleo Rockers was in a wheelchair with her leg up fully extended. Oh yeah. Kevin Adams, lovely Kevin Adams, had a neck brace on. Yes. Yeah. Joe Swash did his knee in. Yeah, and dislocated um, his shoulder. Yeah. And oh dislocated his shoulder. God. How did we get off with it, actually? I nearly drowned. 
you nearly drowned. You did nearly drown. It was just the whole thing. And and they said, don't worry, we've not had any any big accidents at all. And then seven out of the 20 celebs oh. ended up in A&E. And when they went to A&E, the A&E department said, oh, yeah, we've named this ward the Total Wipeout Ward. Did they? I didn't even know that. Yeah. So that's why it was in Buenos Aires, because there's no health and safety. So they could just <laughs> nearly kill us. And it was fine. Was that the end of the series? It, didn't it should last have been, long. but it wasn't. <laughs> it didn't last long. I know it's funny that because so you go around. It's an assault course, basically, isn't it? It's an assault yes. course, and so they had sort of guys at the side, sort of chucking like wet balls at us to try and put us off, and like as you say, no health and safety. And these guys all looked like ZZ Top rejects, didn't they? Yes. I mean, they were mean. Yes. They were like hell's yes. angels, and they were whacking these balls. You know, whereas in the UK it would be oh, yeah. hey, little ball. <laughs> Did, did you both get knocked out quite early then or what? Happened? I did. I think you lasted longer than me, Carrie, didn't you? Yeah, I don't know how I lasted longer, but I I, I it was really frightening actually. And uh and there was no sympathy. Although I do think you and I, Kate, we were trying to be really grown up. And I do remember some of the younger ones like being very teary and all the kind of production staff were all huddling around one or two people and the rest of us just had to suck it up. Yeah, I know. Well, even <laughs> even then we were the old bents, I think. <laughs> we were, yes, we were, even then. We were not the totty on the show and we knew it. <laughs> oh my god. So what was home life then at that stage that you and I were farting about in Buenos Aires oh, for nine yeah. days? That's so interesting because that was 2009 mm. and I had three children at that point. My my youngest would have been three. And none of them were diagnosed with anything. We were sort of a slightly oblivious to, to everything to a certain extent. It was only in August of 2009, just after that, a few months after our trip, Kay, that two were diagnosed as autistic on the same day. And, you know, that that began the, the world of adjustments, really. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess even though you hadn't had a diagnosis at that stage, I, I mean, was all kind of calm and you were utterly blind to anything going on or, or what? To a certain extent, because our oldest would have been uh, about 14. And I think Olive at that point, I mean, Olive wasn't diagnosed with ADHD, but we just thought Olive is one of those children that goes to school and is really distracted. We found Olive at home to be really compliant and lovely and at school, Olivia was uh, Olive was considered to be rebellious and attention seeking, and you know non compliant. And that never really quite sat with us. It wasn't until Olive was eighteen and, and was diagnosed with ADHD we realised, okay, this is what's going on. But with your first child, you don't know any better. Uh, second child, Tylan, in two thousand and nine would have been coming up for eight, and they they were very different, but really what we call under the radar. So able to mask, went into school, hit all the right grades. And and so school didn't bring anything up. It was really at home. They'd come home and they would melt down really badly. And then our third child, Arlo, straight away, we were like, something's going on for this child. This is like, they're not listening to us. They don't seem to answer. They talk about themselves in the third person. They're very rigid about the way they think. Even at two and three, we saw these things. And so I think getting the diagnosis for us was was almost a relief because you kind of went okay. It was when they when when they started asking about uh, Arlo because Arlo was was three that we and they they said about this word autism and we looked it up and we were like, hang on a minute, that is Arlo, but it's actually also Thailand. So 
And then it, we realized we were a completely neurospicy family. <laughs> neurospicy. Yes. Yes. So is it genetic then? Um, there's, a, there's a high chance if you've got some neurodivergence that your children will have. So when I look at my broader family and, and even David and I, you can see traits in there. Yeah. You know, they always, I mean, I don't know if you remember when you were first pregnant and, and you, Karen, the one thing that people used to say to me more than anything else is, your life will change, your yeah. life will change, and, which really pissed me off. And I remember it pissed Ian off. And I remember actually I went out and I bought a convertible car like <laughs> a month before Charlie was born because I was not going to change. I was going to, you know, be the person that I always was. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did I have to eat humble pie? But yeah, you, but there's no point in telling someone life's going to change because that's yeah. just like what, what you, you know, yeah. it's like saying that it tastes of banana. If you've never had a banana, you don't know what it tastes like. How can you even imagine what that's like? So, yeah, you just have to sit with it and go through it, don't you? And I guess for, some people seem to take to life changes, whether that's parenting or other things, take to life changes really easily. They just embrace the change, go with the flow. Others of us are dragged kicking and screaming into a new phase and that you know, and or maybe we change as we get older. I think I've become more okay with change. Uh, living in constant flux will do that to you. But yeah, absolutely. When you first, when someone says life's going to change, it'll never be the same again. <laughs> what are you meant to do with that information? I know, but before you had kids to the outside world, you were leading an absolutely charmed life. You know, mm, you'd met I David. Was. Yeah. Um, which you've described as the defining moment of your life, which I really want to hear more about that because that made me feel um, that I was really a relationship loser. I have to say. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> no, no, we but like a good yeah. argument. Good. I mean, and he was obviously very successful in the pop world. You two were also yeah. successful. You were a dancer on top of the pops, all these kind of things. Mm. So you were leading the life, weren't you? Yeah, we were absolutely leading the life. But you see, David and I don't come from, well, I was going to say, well, I came from a very dysfunctional family. David grew up with his mother and his grandmother. I grew up with my mum. So we don't know what a husband looks like. We don't know what a father looks like. We just know Carrie and David. So we had to make it up as we went along. And I think in some ways there's a disadvantage to that. And in other ways, there's actually an advantage because we don't have those gendered roles really set out for us. We are just who we are. And then we call that husband and wife and mum and dad. So that what the expectation, you know, no one stays married in my family. That was another thing. So it was like, well, we'll see if this works. <laughs> and then we found that it did. Why did you describe the defining moment? I think that David is absolutely, well, two things about him. He's absolutely my equal, which I love. He matches me blow for blow, which is great. But I think also he loves women. He honours women. He comes from very, very strong matriarchal families. You know, those, those women are I mean, incredible. His mother and his grandmother were just incredible women. So he has been brought up to firstly cook clean, clean and sew. That's great. But also he's been brought up to champion women. So, you know, he would always, when I got Fame Academy, for instance, when I was asked to be a judge on that show, they didn't even contact me. They contacted David and asked David to audition. And he said, you should see Carrie. Do you not see, you need to see my wife. She's amazing. And then I got the job and he didn't get the job. And he was as excited for me as he would have been for himself. So that kind of, he's that kind of person. And I think that's exactly what I needed. I'd had so much abuse and crap in my childhood. 
he was just the loveliest human. He's a he's a great guy. I think there are many amazing, amazing women. I'm not completely convinced that there are as many amazing, amazing men. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of lovely ones, but I think those really standouts are, are not always as common. And what did your families make of each other, given that you did come from very different families? It was a nightmare. Absolute Ooh. nightmare. Because my, but let's say for his, a little bit for his, but mine particularly, because I grew up in North London in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, it was very racist being in, in Britain probably at that point and, and certainly where I grew up. And then my my mum was very much the kind of working class, upwardly mobile, twitchy curtains. You always know where you stand. You're either better than these people or you're not as good as these other people. So that's the kind of culture I'd grown up with. And then my mum had remarried and my stepdad was lovely. And he he was like men's captain in the golf club. And my mum was ladies captain in the tennis club. And into that comes their daughter with a black boyfriend. So this was problematic for my parents' social standing. So yeah, we dated for two years. And in that two years, they made it really clear that this was not going to work for them. And eventually I had to put my foot down, I suppose, and say, look, you know, I'm going to get married, whether you like it or not. I'm marrying this guy. He's the one for me. And I think my mum was quite shocked because I think my mum was, I think being a single parent, you think you perhaps have more of an influence. So, you know, that relationship is so intense. And it was that moment of really kind of severing the umbilical cord and saying, no, I'm actually my own person and this is my decision. And even if you don't approve of me, then I have to move forward without your approval. My mum, I have to say, really had a mass, and my stepdad and my birth father all had massive turnarounds and absolutely not just love David, love David's family. My birth father moved to Sierra Leone and married a black woman. So, you know, life changed. But in the middle of the 80s, yeah, there was a couple of years there where it was really hairy. I guess you've got to call that growth, haven't you, on their part? Absolutely. And we've still got a long way to go in society today. But certainly for my family, it was a massive change. And, you know, David was gracious in just waiting and just staying solid and staying forgiving. And, you know, that's the thing that I hated to watch was watching him having to do all the hard work of toleration and keep going, but he stood it out and they came round, which is great. Mm. So what were your expectations of life then, the two of you, you glamorous, gorgeous pop stars that you were? I think our expectations were, actually, I think our expectations of ourselves, I'd, I'd been newly diagnosed with Crohn's disease and I was actually very ill. So I think in those first few years of marriage, there was that that challenge was huge, I remember at the time. But I think we thought that being parents, we would be that family that, you know, you sit in a restaurant and people look at you and they just go, look at those, those parents are good. Look at those kids. They're they're reading the menu in French and they're ordering <laughs> and saying thank you. And, you know, but my kids are the ones under the table and they're the ones that are all on iPads and and then saying they want to leave after the starter. Yeah, that's what I have. <laughs> but that's okay. Was it always okay, though? I mean, maybe you're a better person than me, but I suppose when my kids first came along, I didn't want them to be perfect, but they are kind of a reflection of you to a certain extent. I mean, that's maybe not a great admission on my part. You go to a party, your kid's misbehaving. You're looking at the other parents and you're wondering, are they thinking, God, I can't control my kids. It's not natural. 
Great. Yeah. And and then, of course, every other parent, because of us, is able to say, well, at least my child is better than those ones. So that actually makes it, we are the lowest common denominator, which is just how it is. And that's difficult for us sometimes. That's challenging for us. We are the the parents that go, you know, I remember when mine were very little, just trying to go through an airport, trying to go anywhere would be really challenging because our children would be having meltdowns and you know, I don't think my children are a reflection of me because I don't have meltdowns and they do, but that's just because they're neurodivergent and I have to understand that. You know, what are we really talking about here? Yeah. So we're talking about children that um, certainly those three of them have got ADHD out of four and two at least are autistic. And so though that means that they are living with high, high levels of anxiety, which means that getting to school is very difficult surviving school is very difficult. And I would say not just staying in school, but surviving school. School is made for neurotypical people. It's made for what we have decided is normal and that kind of ideology around normal. And my children don't fit that. So my children go to school and they think, I don't want to wear this blazer because it's super itchy and it's driving me nuts. And the school rules say, you have to keep your blazer on. So my children get really dysregulated because they're really hot and itchy. And after a while, they can't learn. Then they're thinking, I've got to go out for playtime in an hour and nobody's going to play with me because no one likes me. And then they're going to, one might think, I can't do this work. I don't understand what it's about. It's not making any sense. And then another one might think the teacher isn't even noticing that inside I feel like I'm going to cry, but I can't. So I'm just going to hold it all in till the end of the day. And these are the children we would be picking up from school at the end of the day, are children that are completely dysregulated. And then they might need an hour and a half of screaming and shouting and not able to eat food or, you know, not able to go to bed. So stay up all night. The anxiety is a huge one. And so how did that feel for you? It's really difficult. You're very tired a lot of the time and you do become a, a full-time carer. So hence you used to see David and I on screen together all the time. And now you'll see us. I did the one show on my own for 10 years. I was on the one show and David did songs of praise. And so we were on separate programs so that we could divide our work up so that one of us would always be at home because invariably one or other of our children would go to school and within 10 minutes or an hour, there'd be a call saying, you need to come and pick them up. And so it's really hard to arrange anything or do anything. And um, and being a full-time carer, that, again, it changes you. It took me a while to remember that I am myself, that I'm Carrie, that I'm separate, that it's almost like in your empathy for your children, you climbing to their skin and you kind of, because you're only as happy as your least happy child, right? So you're just kind of, I want my child to be okay. And um, and you climb into their the sense of them, their skin, if you like. And I realized after a while that I was not survived this myself unless I remember to get back out again. I remember actually you're Carrie, you're your own person. Then there's you and David. That's your marriage. That's your own thing. And you're Carrie that goes and does presenting. And that's, I mean, I have to say the one show during those years was such a good thing to do because I would go and I would make a film for the day and they would edit it up and it would be on this, this, this show, you know, a couple of days later. And what was lovely about that was just to do a task that was completable. You know, it just felt, I think when you're raising children for any of us, we feel like, does this ever end? 
It's like, no, you don't. You're always going to be worrying about them. Like you were saying about, you know, your, your child going to their first day at work you're, or, under, you know, hearing their breath and going, oh, oh, hang on a minute. There's something going wrong here. All of that, that never finishes, does it? Yeah, it's really difficult. It's really difficult if you don't know your child's going to live. That's a, that's the biggest. But when you say you don't know if your child's going to live, sorry, what, what do you mean? I mean that they might end their own life. So we were on and off suicide watch with Thailand for three years. So, you know, as a parent, what your life becomes is you go into their bedroom in the morning and the first thing you're doing is seeing if the bed is moving or you look up and you look up at the light fittings to make sure no one's hanging there. Just, I mean, it's trigger warning, but that's very real. It's a very real possibility. And when it's a very real possibility, you're changed by that really. I think uh, because you're so desperate for your child to stay alive and and be healthy. And you're also, that's why the book has got all these strategies in because, you know, you go and, oh my gosh, the services are shocking. You go and they're like, Mrs. Grant, uh, let's see, are you listening well to your child? And you're just like, do you know, are you, that's so patronizing. We've got a new acronym for you. It's called SIT, you know, S is for silence. I is for intuition. You're just like, honestly, you need to give me something better than this. And so we learned, we did loads of trauma therapy and that actually was what really helped us and came up with strategies that work. And once we started implementing those, I think we felt like we were empowered again. I think for many years, we just felt like how we can't do this. We're so useless. You know, you've got one who doesn't want to live. You've got another one that wants to punch you in the face. And you've got another one who's refusing to go to school. And this is normal for our families. For people that don't have these situations going on, they'll be like, oh my gosh, that sounds dreadful. How dysfunctional. But actually for anyone who's got this stuff going on, they will be nodding to this podcast right now going, oh my gosh, she's talking about my life. This is me. Because that's what our families face. Those of us that have got children that have got mental health issues, neurodivergence, that that kind of stuff, we will be going through this stuff. It's part of the course. Did you and David respond in the same way, deal with it in the same way? Because I would imagine in families where there's, well, in families where there's one parent, God help them. In families where there's two parents that maybe don't have the same approach, again, there's real room for tension there. Yeah. And and just to come back to your original thought with that, Kay, about, you know, having a great marriage. We had a, we have a great marriage for sure we do. But, you know, for a year and a half at least, David and I were on completely different pages. And that was because we had decided how we were going to raise our children. We were very boundaried, very clear, very solid, and uh, and probably a little bit strict. And I began to realize this just was not going to work. And I stuck to it for as long as I could. And then I realized that our children's mental health was really struggling because of the way we were parenting on top of everything else. For instance, something like a child saying, I don't want to go to school day after day after day after day. You're almost dragging them down the stairs to get them in the car to go to school because you're really scared of the attendance officer and you don't want them writing you a snotty letter. So because of your fear of authority, you compromise on your child's mental health, which is what we did for a while. And I realized it was breaking our child. I jumped ship. David, to begin with, didn't jump ship. David did what most people would probably do, which is said, we need to double down here. We need to be more strict. We need to put bigger boundaries. We're just not strict enough. And I was like, uh-uh, but we need to just change up, switch it up. It's not working. 
And so for about 18 months, whilst we were on those different pages, I think it was probably quite confusing for the kids. We were just powerless, really, I would say. We were either being both being super assertive or both just being like hiding in a corner saying, kids, just do what you want. And and it, it was really getting back into the center through trauma therapy, through a thing called nonviolent resistance, which is a form of parenting. Through some of those strategies that we learned, it gave it gave us back the parental control. Once we started parenting in that way, in a new way, that changed. It was a game changer. And and David, once he jumped on board and we both started to absolutely see this as a planned way, a planned approach, it changed for us. It changed for the kids. And that when we started seeing those changes, we were like, oh, my gosh, this actually works. Let, let's continue. What stage was that then that you changed your approach fundamentally? So I think it was around about the time that Nathan, our fourth child, we we adopted him when he was two in 2011. So it was around that time, I think, because we were facing so many different types of challenges. Because once you're, you've got an adoptive child, you're, of course, dealing with early life trauma. And that's very different to neurodivergence. Early life trauma brings a whole other sort of suite of mental health issues and, and also approaches. Our birth children... We could kind of, I would say, tell them off, but you know, like with normal parenting, so just eat your greens, will you? You know, that kind of just, just eat them up. You know, that's what, that's the last thing I'm saying on this. You couldn't do that with Nathan. It would have him in absolute turmoil. He would default to shame. He would go and hide behind the sofa. He, and you'd be like, okay, we have to change this. We, it's not going to work. And, and it is actually looking at stuff for him that gave us a lot of insights for the others once we understood just how to work with your children. I think sometimes we are very quick to to want to solve problems for our children. And once we gave up trying to solve everything, I realized that a lot of the time children have the solution within them. And that's how they build resilience is through working out how to solve it rather than me helicoptering in and trying to solve it for them. So for instance, I remember when Tylen was really, really depressed, and they would have been—he would have been about fourteen or fifteen. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to solve this because I can't change the fact that that he's depressed. So I would go and sit on the end of his bed, and I—I went in the first day, and I just sat there like a normal teenager. He just went, "What are you doing? Can you get out?" And I was like, "I'm just staying for sixty seconds." And I stayed for sixty seconds, and. Ty looked at his watch and went, okay, you can go now. And I was like, okay, I'm going. And then I went in the next day and I went up to 90 seconds. I wasn't saying anything. I was just sitting there. And he was like, are you doing that weird thing when you're going to sit on the end of my bed and be really weird for a minute and then leave? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to keep doing that. Uh, so I persisted with this. And after a couple of weeks, I got it up to about five minutes. After about two weeks, Ty said to me, I'm really sad. I feel really, really, really low. And at that point, I could have come up with a thousand strategies and said, well, you know what you should do? But I didn't. I resisted doing that. And I just said, I know. I know you are. You are really, really sad. I can see you're sad. And I can't actually change that. I can't change mood. That's not in my power to do that. But what I can do is I can sit with you in this. Why don't I just sit with you in it? You know, a few little tears came uh, down Ty's cheeks. And then they stopped and I said, okay, I'm going to go now. And I came back the next day. Some days it would happen, some days it wouldn't. And after a while, Ty started to say, 
mum, can you do that thing where you just come in and you just sit on my bed? So parenting in a way is way simpler because I'm not having mm. to come up with like, let me tell you all to go and, you know, join the hockey club or something. I, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying I, I can't change it, actually. This is life. Depression lies to us and tells us we're completely alone and no one understands us and no one will get us. So to sit with someone in that space is really precious. I mean, Ty is 21 now and Ty, Ty is completely different and has been great, you know, in terms of his mental health for the last five years. But Ty will occasionally say, Can just come and sit with me. All my kids, I've did, I started doing it with all the kids. I was like, this is amazing. And then another one was just to simply hear them. Children just need, we all actually just need to be heard. So when a child comes home and says, I'm not going to school tomorrow, I hate it. I'm not going in. I'm not going in because I hate school. The teacher hates me. A lot of parents will say, it will be fine in the morning. It's okay. The teacher likes you. In fact, I had a word with her the other week and she was telling me how much she enjoyed having you in the class. And we give them all the reasons why they should go. My children, they'll go, I don't want to go to school. I hate school and the teacher hates me. And I will say, you don't want to go to school. You hate school and the teacher hates you. My children will then just march into school quite happily because all they needed was to be heard. They needed to be validated. They needed to know that I was going to hold them in mind whilst they went in and did something they were scared of doing. It's it's not rocket science. It's just simple, simple stuff of holding the space for our children. But my God, you have been forced to evolve in a phenomenal way. A lot, lot of us sleepwalk through life and just do the things we've always done or our parents always did. You have been forced to evolve. And hopefully there is some reward for that for you. I think there is. And I think that that comes year on year. I think that I tried, David and I are both very hopeful people. So we've always held on to hope, you know, that there is change, things change, life changes. And that's why actually why I was really excited when you said about coming onto this podcast, because I thought I'm 58 this year. How do I feel about being 60? How do I approach that? And I am so looking forward to getting older because I feel like Every year that goes past, and what a waste we have of our older people because we learn and we are wise as we I understand older wisdom now. And we miss out on this stuff. We there should be more older people on telly than young people. There should be more of this wisdom because this is the stuff, this is the magic that our young people need. So yeah, I I just want for more of how to be 60 and 70 (laughs) and 80. Yes. Hell yes. (laughs) But again, to give credit to you, Carrie, not everyone does learn. People can live for a hundred years and choose not to learn. You and David have chosen to learn. I don't, I would disagree. No, I don't think I've chosen. I think when a child says, I'm not going to school, you have, you have no choice. Either you change or something will happen. I don't know what would happen, but it's catastrophic. The thought of you not changing is catastrophic for your kids. So you have to change. I've got an option. Do I carry on presenting? Do I a bit, bit more coaching? Do I fancy a bit of radio? What do I want to do? Yes, we have options. But in the situations I'm talking about, I had no option. Mm. Can I just ask, because obviously an option to adopt your fourth child. Yeah. What was thinking behind that? Because I'm with <laughs> Kay thinking... Christ, like the, the hard work with the, you know your first your three, and then as if that's not difficult enough, mm, let's let's bring another child in. Let's adopt a child. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying, and and there is no way 
that I would have ever changed my mind about adoption. I, I think adoption was was and is amazing. I think that at the point that we adopted Nathan, things were a lot easier for the other children. I think had we just that you know that, that they all got a little bit older and then the problems were really showing. So I think we probably would have gone. I think we've got enough on our hands. But at the time that we adopted Nathan, uh, that wasn't the case. Like it became a few years later. And the situation with Nathan be- became so challenging that you've had to kind of change the configuration of the household, haven't you? Nathan was very violent from the age of about five at school and at home. And then David and I started practicing all this non-violent resistance stuff that I talked about earlier. And that stopped all violence at home. We had no violence at home at all, only in school. Nathan went to a special school and lockdown came. Lockdown was amazing. So, so Nathan was very, very violent at school, but not at home. Lockdown happened. Lockdown, obviously, out of school for nearly a year, probably nine months. And no violence at all at home or, or wasn't at school. So no violence at all. Went back to school after lockdown. I now he was nearly 13. And the uh, violence was off the charts at school. So he was permanently excluded from school. And at that point, the violence returned home. So we had, you know, the last time we dealt with a violent little boy, he was six or seven years old. And suddenly we're dealing with a big strapping 13-year-old, and it became impossible. We were just ringing the police all the time. And David would, because of social services and all the fear about that, David would leave the room that we were in. I would get into a ball and allow myself to be hit. David would call the police, and police and ambulance services would arrive. And then whatever damage Nathan had done to me, they, you know, I'd be taken to hospital and my skull x-rayed and all sorts going on. And I kept asking for help, saying, please, if if I'm raising a child who's got something really serious in his DNA even, I, I just I just need to know what it is. Can someone tell me what it is so that we know what to do? You know, we're really on it, parents. Just give us a hand. Get him some specialist help and proper diagnosis and assessments and stuff. That didn't come at all. So the violence kept going, violence kept going. In the end, the local authority saw the violence because we were saying we're at our wits end. And what they did was they paid for two security guards to live in our house for seven days a week. That's bonkers. Yeah, this is how bonkers, right? So then every morning the guys would arrive and it would be different. Obviously, it's different people every day. You're going to have people, you know, all the same people all the time. So these big hurly burly guys would arrive. And of course, this was just unlive, untenable with autistic children as well. Like all these strangers coming into the home, sitting there all day, waiting for a child who's out of school, just waiting for him to explode. And then a friend of ours came to see David and I and just said, the trouble with you is you look like you're coping. You're not going to get any help. So I was like, what do you mean I'm not going to get any help? They're like, well, you won't, no one's going to reach out and help you. Look at you. You've got all your strategies. You've got a lovely home. You've got like, you're therapeutic, you're trauma informed. The next time that Nathan exploded, we went to the social services and said, we are signing a section 20. Now, a section 20 is that Nathan goes back into the care of the state. He's still our child. He's still our adopted child. We, I could go and pick up Nathan now, but he's currently in a therapeutic placement, not living in the home, which is not what we wanted and not how it should have been. But the systems in this country, that's how they work. So it's the only way you're going to access any help. And what message does that give? to this 13-year-old child who just needs the help. 
But we're saying he's 13 now, he's not getting any smaller because once he's in the care of the local authority and professionals, then they have to provide that added service. They have to because it's professional. When it's parents, they'll just keep fobbing you off. How hard was that to do? It was hideous, yeah. So there's a part of you, you know, the whole family, all of us, it's hideous for every one of us. Part of you is relieved because you know you're not going to get hit anymore and my children are not watching their mum being hit. On the other hand, you are grieving the fact that this incredible, lovely, sweet, most of the time, child is now not living in the house. And when he comes home to visit, it's not the same. It's tragic for families. I would rather that happen than a failed adoption where you never see a child again. Mm. For me, I'm like, this is a decision out of love to protect my other children. And of course, I don't want to be here. I've never been here as an adult and I don't want the risk of being killed. I'll give them my everything, but not not my life. I'm mm. sorry. I, I draw the line at that. Listen, Kay, if you don't mind, we need to talk about the gender thing. Yeah, sure. You know, you, you've said that you have become more comfortable with change and that we've talked about how you evolve as a parent, etc. You have three children who were girls at birth and they are not now. Tell me what you want to tell me about that. Well, I think the first thing I would say is that when you have neurodivergent children like we have, the big shock of that, if there is a shock, you kind of, you realise you've entered into a different zone of parenting. You're already parenting in a different way and different styles of people. I think you then are more open to the possibility that these children might have some surprises up their sleeves. I think we've been probably a bit more prepared for that than perhaps people that parents that have never had those things. So I think in a way, we've slightly taken it in our stride. So that's not to say uh, it's all been smooth sailing, but I think that you know, I remember the first child was was Arlo, um, Arlo who's now 17. But when Arlo was about 10 or 11, we were sitting down at dinner one day and Arlo said, I just want you to know I'm now a boy and my name is Ian. And my two older children just went, not Ian. <laughs> and David and I, it, it was really good because it brought David and I a few seconds to what we call fix our face. <laughs> to just go, okay, uh, right, let's just think about, right, this is a new one. So it it was great because the first thing that was just like, Ian, I'm not really sure about that name. Sorry if your name's Ian. You're probably lovely. My partner's Um, Ian. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There you go. See, we love Ian. And lots of Scots called Ian, of course. And so, you know, Arlo, they they just played around with names and David and I were just listening. And, you know, I think in those early months, I just wanted to work out at that point with that particular child, they were really struggling with being autistic. They are now so proud of being autistic. But I think at the time they were struggling with that. I think at that age, a lot of our children will be struggling with their differences. When they hit puberty, it's really hard. And even more so, I'd say for neurodivergent children, but also mixed race children. They're like, uh, what color am I? Who am I? Because everyone's calling me black, even though I'm mixed race. All those things are little bits of identity that they're trying to process and work through. And I think in the first few months, I just very slowly had the conversations with Arlo about being autistic. And I said, look, if you're a boy, that's absolutely fine, babe. But I just want you to know, you do know that you'll be an autistic boy, don't you? And it was a little bit of a light bulb moment for Arlo, who kind of went, oh. So I think initially it was that they just were not comfortable with being autistic. They then realized that they were gay. So that was fine. That was the next bit. 
And then it kind of just were a bit, they've been fluid since then. So sometimes they would call themselves non-binary. Sometimes they say, say that they're trans. We just sit with it. You don't have to make a big statement. You don't have to be like, try, you have to be an honest broker. There's no point in trying to listen to your child when if you've got some agenda to change change them the whole time. You, you know, and there's been a lot of accusations of, you know, parents dragging their kids to clinics and stuffing them full of tablets. And that's rubbish. I mean, Tylan went for his first appointment uh, with the NHS last year and they said, oh, this is just a pre-appointment. If you want to transition, it's a 14-year waiting list. I think if we've got 14-year waiting list, we can hardly say that these children are being pushed into uh, transitioning. I don't, I mean, I'm a little bit involved in this group of people and I don't know any parent that is pushing their child. You sit with your child, you listen to your child, you hear where they're at, you try to work out, is this something that's a permanent thing? Is this something that you're just feeling for a, a moment? So that was Arlo. And then Olive is non-binary and that's fine. And Tylen is trans. Yeah, a little bit of everything in there. How do you envisage your future? Because David's older yeah. than you, isn't he? He's 66 now, is he? Yeah, he's 66 and I'm 57. So yeah, I think there's part of us that really look forward to just hanging out together. Mm-hmm. But I think for anyone who's got children with disability, you worry about what happens after you've gone. So you have to make preparations. And I think we're at that stage now where we're saying, okay, these children are now going, particularly for Arlo at 17, going into adulthood, what will become of my child? That's a big one. You know, you want to make sure that your children are looked after once you're gone and things are in place. Like Arlo was out of school for three years because there wasn't a local school that, it wasn't any school around for an hour and a half actually that could could take Arlo on. And so um, for three years, we were teachers, therapists and their social life. And when your mum and daddy are best friends, you know, that it changes things, doesn't it? Because you just want to be a normal teen. And if we're between 11 and 14, you're just dad, your mum and dad. It's a bit boring. And so, you know, and they have got some friends now, but it's hard. It's hard when you're autistic. It's hard to make friends when you're autistic. Do you still have space for you and David, just you and David? Yeah, we do. We um we try to go away for at least one night every four months. So that sounds well, you're like spoiling torture. yourself. <laughs> Believe me, after what we've had, that's that's like feels like ten years. Even if you just go away and argue for twenty four hours, it's great. Mm. It's different, but it's um, and and then actually, when the children now two of them are at work, the older two are at work, and then when Arlo's at school, we have the morning. We sit there with a little coffee, and in the summer, there's been so nice. We sit in the garden for a good half an hour and just natter. We still have very shared visions. You know, I'm studying at the moment. So I went back to school, left school at 15 and went back to school. What are you studying? I'm doing a master's in theology. Yeah, which is... I don't know who you find the the energy, the time, the space in your head. I don't know how I find it, but I'll tell you what, writing essays, oh yeah. Writing this book was easy after that that lot. (laughs) Wow. Listen, we have a little thing we do, which is Big Six or Bingo. Mad random questions. You just have yeah. to pick two numbers between one and 60. So and- fire away. Give us one. Give us your first number. 24. Sentimental or facing forward? I've, I'm getting sentimental as I get older. Mm-hmm. I'm like, 
I'm missing Bruce Forsyth in the Generation Game. <laughs> and nice are you to being so? Nice. Yeah. I'm like, what happened? I've suddenly, you know, like, I'm never going to hear those songs again. No one's going to know these songs from the 70s that we hated, but I now love. <laughs> At the moment, I think as I'm studying as well and I've done the book thing, I've kind of like, I'm trying to push out. I'm trying to extend, do something new. You know, I've, I've been a voice coach for so long. I now feel like it's now time to give people voice, which is a lot bigger than just being a te- singing teacher. Um, right. uh, another one? Yeah, throw us another number. 41. 41. Who has had the most impact on your life? That's such a good question. Um, I probably would have to say David, but that mm. sound, does sound cheesy. But that probably, in truth, that, that it is David. I think above David, I would have to say God. I have a very, very strong faith. So that's a really important thing to me, to stand out in my garden in the morning and just go, yes, hello. That gives you perspective on everything. Do you know, okay, just as we're winding up, I promise we're taking so much of your time. But, uh, you know, obviously we've talked about a lot of really kind of difficult things and, you know, all of these challenges. But mm-hmm. what still shines through from you incredibly is you've got an enormous enthusiasm for life, an enormous sense of joy and fun. I I love the fact that you keep that going. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I don't I think the other option is just not <laughs> it's not doable. <laughs> Uh, yeah but some people you know and it's not a blame thing but do get kind of sucked down by by challenges yeah no no I totally get that I do you know what though I know it's taking a bit more time but I actually think being diagnosed with Crohn's disease in my 20s was as awful as it was I think that prepped me I think because it gave me a perspective on you've got something for the rest of your life and you might die from it and I think once you go whoa, hang on a minute. I didn't plan for that when I was 20. And it took a good five years of feeling terrible and laying in hospital and just thinking life is so tiny and so stupid and small and irrelevant. I think when you face that, I don't know, I think you it makes you different. It changes you so that when the, the bigger challenges have come later on, I think they have probably been built on that little bit of resilience that got developed in my 20s. Well, listen, it's been so lovely to speak to you. It really Thank you. Has. You're Thank amazing, you so by oh, the way. You are flaming amazing, can I just say? Mm-hmm. It, honestly, it, it's just been oh my God. A, a great... But your story, Karen, your story that you told me before I came on, I was like, oh my gosh, that's what an incredible woman you are. Mm-hmm. And I don't often say it, Carrie, but I have to agree with you. I thought exactly the same thing. I'll take that, Kay. Like, props. All right. Take care now. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week, less than a month to go before Karen and I hit the Edinburgh Fringe on the 9th, 10th and 11th of August. If you fancy coming to see us, we are at the Gilda Balloon at 5.30. Tickets are available on the Fringe website. Next week, pop legend, Midyear. <laughs>